Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest is James Close, Head of Climate Change at NatWest Bank. Prior to joining NatWest, James is with the London Waste and Recycling Board and the World Bank as a Director of Climate Change for nearly four years. In his new role at NatWest Group, James will define and deliver a roadmap for the response to climate-related risks and opportunities. He will also set up and lead a Climate Centre of Excellence to help the bank deliver its climate change strategy and bring all of its climate-related work together. So welcome, James Close, to the Sustainability and You podcast. We're so delighted to have you join Tilly and I today. We're excited not just because you've just joined NatWest as their new head of climate change in this critical year of the COP26, but because you're a committed and passionate advocate of climate solutions. We thought we would begin today, if it's okay with you, by just hearing about your new role at NatWest. Yeah, thank you, Josephine, and uh, great to see both you and Tilly today, and great to be joining all the listeners as well. And thanks for that uh, introduction. I guess we started on this journey together a little bit, Josephine, didn't we, when we were at uh, EY and we were uh, pushing climate change very, very hard within the organisation. And ever since then, it's been at the heart of what I've been seeking to do professionally. And uh, NatWest came and approached me and said they were looking for a new head of climate change to to build this what we call a center of excellence within the organization that is a catalyst for uh, the activity across the whole NatWest group. We, we don't do everything to do with climate change at all. In fact, we're just acting as somebody who sets the direction and supports the implementation, but we really want the rest of the business to take ownership and leadership of what they're doing on climate change. So we work very closely on uh, a number of particular areas. We support the uh, One Bank Climate Opportunities Group, which is looking at a number of areas where we think there's enormous potential growth, whether that's on clean and green buildings or whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's carbon tracking or green and innovative finance uh, or the renewables uh, activity. We also set uh, our trajectory around our Paris alignment commitments. Uh, So we've committed to halve the climate impacts of our financing by at least half by 2030. Uh, And that obviously requires a lot of analytics to support it. And we sit at the centre of that and giving the rest of the business the tools to make the uh, lending uh, decisions that they need to make to achieve those targets. And of course, uh, we're the principal sponsor of the COP. So We work with our public affairs team and our marketing and events team uh, to help pull together the whole programme for 
NatWest activity in relationship to the to the COP. And we're also very heavily engaged with uh, external stakeholders as well, making sure that we understand uh, what they think and how that uh, impacts what we do. And you've probably seen the climate-related disclosures report that came out, which uh, was uh, most of the work was done before my time, so I can't claim credit for it. But it's a it's a really uh, far-reaching piece of work that's started the journey of putting some real transparency around what we're trying to achieve on climate change. It was a great piece of work, actually, and clearly you and the wider team have been incredibly busy and will continue to be <laughs> in the run-up to the COP26. Your appointment seems to have coincided with the refresh of the bank's strategy, and it's very clear that it is now a purpose-led bank, with the climate being one of the fundamental pillars underpinning that purpose alongside learning and enterprise. Can you say something about what that means to be Mm. a purpose-led bank? Yeah, well, I think, again, this was before my time last February when the strategy was developed and the announcement was made. And I think the intention of being purpose-led is to balance the need of all stakeholders. And we use the blueprint for better business approach, which looks at serving customers and making sure that we're honest and fair with customers, uh, that we're doing the right thing, that we're a good citizen uh, in the communities that we're part of, that we work together and that we're a responsible and responsive employer for our colleagues and our staff, and that we think long-term. And of course, that's where climate change comes in because uh, we need to be guardians for future generations if we're going to make sure that uh, we uh, fulfill our purpose. And of course, at the same time, we're very focused on delivering sustainable financial returns as well, because there's no point being a purpose-led bank if you're not actually in business, because you're not uh, making a sustainable return on your uh, capital. So I think it's, it's really nicely done. It's a very robust piece of work. I think it's also something that uh, the organisation can learn from and has continuously asked itself the questions about what it means to be purpose-led, how to make uh, purposeful decisions. And uh, it seems to be gaining quite a lot of traction. And uh, it certainly appeals enormously to uh, colleagues and staff because they feel that they're engaged in something that is a bit broader than just day-to-day lending and uh, managing people's bank accounts. They feel as though they have a stake in uh, the society and the communities in which they Um, and we all live in and participate in. What I really like about it, it seems to be reframing and re-articulating the role of the banks within society. What do you think, if you think about the access to finance, you think about the Mm. role of finance in shifting the needle on the decarbonisation journey, what do you think the role of the banks is on the global stage Mm. when it comes to accelerating that that pathway? Well, I think, So, I mean, just to say something about the history of this a little bit. I mean, Adair Turner started talking about uh, purpose-led finance just after the financial crash. And then Mark Carney's picked it up in talking about value to values Mm -hmm. and the relationship, not just between shareholder value, but also the broader values that we have as, as a society. And at the heart of that, I think, is the transition, a just transition from where we are today 
in terms of addressing climate change to where we have to be uh, by 2050, which we know from the Paris Agreement and from the science is that we need to be at net zero before uh, 2050. So we've got a, a massive shift in financing that's going to take place uh, to facilitate that. And uh, I think if you look at the way in which that finance is going to have to change, it will be stopping financing a lot of the brown activities that are out there, whether that's coal or, or other fossil fuels, but also uh, supporting the you know green, bright green assets of renewables and other you know bright green finance that's very clearly on the zero carbon side of things. But a huge amount will also be on transitional finance. How do you help businesses that have good intentions shift from their model that they have today to the model that they want to have in the future? And it's not just our large corporate clients. It's also small, medium-sized enterprises and also our uh, retail customers as well, because they're going to have to have a very different way of living if we're going to be a net zero. We're going to have to have net zero homes and we'll be shifting away from the internal combustion engine. And those are all places where uh, retail banks have historically um, financed and, and lent um, and supported uh, customers. And also you need to know what, what, what you're buying and what your pensions go to be. And all of those things fit really well with the proposition uh, that a bank has for that uh, transition. I think as Mark Carney said, and you've uh, alluded to it very well, is that we're, we're really facing 50 shades of green. It's mm. not just green or brown, yeah. but it raises an important point around the just transition. A number of the banks have come under criticism for not being clear enough around what it means to engage mm. with a just transition. And it's very much focused on investments into lending to oil and gas do you think that more could be done to articulate the just transition strategy or actually what it means to justly transition? Mm. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd take a step back, Josephine, from retail and commercial banking and look at financial flows more globally. You know, the poorest and the most vulnerable are the ones who are going to be affected uh, most significantly by climate change. And, you know, in my role at the World Bank made me very aware of some of those uh, challenges that people would face. For many small island states, it's an uh, existential risk as to whether or not they can build and adapt to the climate change uh, that's already in train. So uh, how are we going to mobilise the finance to support it? And we've got, you know, in the Paris Agreement, a commitment to the 100 billion of finance from developed countries to developing countries. Uh, but that's really only going to touch the surface of the trillions of dollars that are required to put those countries onto a trajectory of uh, strong economic growth and decarbonisation. And, you know, as developed countries, we have to play our role in providing that finance. And of course, for, uh, for banks, the principles are the same. And we, we don't want to find a situation where we're actually creating vast waves of joblessness because we've been reckless about the way in which we've made some of these transition financing decisions. So it has to be absolutely central to the way in which we go about reconfiguring financial flows, both globally and between public finance and private finance, and using the principles of 
blended finance and concessional finance to support uh, those sorts of activities. And how much do you think that science-based target initiatives and transition pathway initiatives should be contractually embedded into covenants? Uh, well, I mean, that's a, a very you know challenging question in as much as, you know, I think it was the uh, principles, the UN principles of responsible investing actually start off with the all investing uh, must uh, be consistent with fiduciary responsibilities. Yeah. So it goes to the heart of what are the fiduciary responsibilities? And I think this is where, uh, at, a, at a meta level, things are changing. It's uh, the original premise of John Maynard was that, you know, the, the, the firm is there to maximise profit. And I think we're starting to question whether that really gives us the outcomes that we that we want in terms of the way in which capital flows and uh, finance can be purposeful. So uh, therefore, you start to think about aligning your purpose-related objectives of creating a, an environmentally, socially, and uh, economically viable future for all with the returns expectations that you want to get around that. And I think that's where uh, you know, the risk-return balance comes into its own. And again, you know, better quality data helps you make better decisions around that because at the heart of it is questions around credit risk and um, the credit risk of future potential stranded assets is obviously a lot greater than uh, the credit risk associated with, with, with financing some of the green opportunities that are out there, or is different, I should say. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. different. It's primarily a technology risk uh, that sits with, with some of those new technologies. But once they get to a point of scale, that technology risk uh, diminishes. And of course, I think there are meta studies now that evidence that those organisations that have embedded ESG strategies do generate alpha. So what was thought of historically as maybe a balanced purpose versus mm. profit mm. and not necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm. It's difficult to sort of define the attribution around all of that. And um, but. But there, there is some logic to it, and particularly as you see investors changing their uh, expectations of what they want to invest in, and, and they're very committed, in many cases, to finding ESG investment opportunities. And you know, you look at that through the asset managers and the work that people like BlackRock have done. I mean, it's it, it's really shifting in terms of uh, the expectations that they have, and I think that's a that's just a fascinating conversation. Uh, for us to be embarking on, because it does feel like a more intelligent and purposeful form of capitalism than the one that perhaps has um, pervaded in the past, which is a bit binary about winners and losers, uh, which doesn't necessarily give us the outcomes that we, we, we need over the course of the next 30 years. I was just going to ask, I was wondering about that, um, and you kind of, you started to cover it there actually, but how maybe profit is being rebranded in a way or needs to be rebranded and that it was very focused on kind of short-term, well, short-term profit versus long-term. And when you talk about stranded assets, you know, does it Mm. feel like people are more inclined to make those kind of long-term investment and can profit be extended to a more kind of holistic look on things rather than just the capitalist approach? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, profit is, I mean, for... Uh, an accountant like me is a subject of definition. I mean, it's it, it is a result of the difference between the costs and the revenues. So, 
at, at that level, it's difficult to kind of rebrand it. But what I think you can do is you can amplify it with other uh, attributes. So, you know, that's why non-financial reporting is really quite an important combination with, with profit. And of course, profit is an annual uh, measure of uh, surplus. But, you know, the net present value of future profits or future cash flows is what really defines value. And then if you add on to that, the other things, the non-financial reporting aspects that we're talking about, all the concepts of just transition, long-term uh, sustainability, then you do get into that world of values that Mark Carney talks about, the, the ability to define what we do, uh, not just through short-term profit, but also the longer-term values that we hold uh, important to us. And again, finance can make those decisions in, a, in an effective way by choosing where it's uh, where it's allocated. You know, if you look at uh, people like Generation Investment, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get uh, allocation of capital to businesses that are going to be useful and valuable and contribute well to society. Now, I mean, NatWest itself has taken a leading position in sterling-denominated green bonds and hmm. sustainable finance. What, what, what trends are you seeing in that that space and what continuing role do you think NatWest mm -hmm. will play in, well, in yeah. growing within that space? Yeah. Well, enormous growth in demand from investors, as I say. Um, and in fact, to the point where, you know, quite often the, there isn't the uh, quality of underlying assets for investment, which is, you know, creating a an acceleration of um, corporate green and uh, social and sustainability bonds and also transition related bonds um, and at the same time there's also you know sovereign uh, bonds associated with that as well the UK green guilt and Italy's done a, a a bond as well when you start to think about the scale of financial flows um, it, I think it's something like 23 trillion dollars worth of financial flows a year of which you know 500 uh, billion is is green bonds. So we're really touching the surface. And I think, as Will, William Russell would say, you know, we, we want to be uh, greening finance and financing green. You know, this is, it's not just about looking at that bright green. Uh, it's really making sure that all finance has climate-related decisions at the core of the way it's allocated. And that's, again, fits in very nicely with the long-term nature of both investment and also uh, the climate emergency in terms of how we're dealing with it. And if you think definitionally about what it means to be green within the context of bonds and sustainable linked loans, mm. there has been some views espoused that definitionally it becomes quite restrictive if you try and pin down too precisely and what it means to be green because you're restricting the ambit of mm. financing options. Do you, do you have a view on that? Well, it, I mean, you're, I think you're referring to almost the taxonomy question, aren't you? That yeah. the, the sort of EU has run into some quite challenging uh, uh, discussions around, and and I think it's it's really hard to. I mean, again, to maybe take our colour analogies too far to be really black and white around some of these things, because. It, that then forces you to make compromising decisions and and you know as i think the debate's going on in the eu is 
is gas actually part of the green taxonomy? Well, you know, of course, it's lower emitting than other alternatives, but that makes it something that enables you to transition uh, to that greener future. But over what time horizon do you need to do that in order to, you know, both keep the lights on and also make it um, economically viable to uh, produce energy at a reasonable cost? Now, you know, I think if you look at the sort of scientific background around all of this, you would come to the view that we've actually assumed that this transition period is rather longer than it ought to be for the sake of the emissions trajectory that we're producing. You know, we're at 417 ppm against a, a safe a level of 350 ppm, and we continue to be increasing by 3 ppm per year. So every tonne of carbon that we emit today makes it harder to get to that one and a half degrees temperature alignment. Um, and that's why, you know, interim targets are really important because um, you don't want to sort of believe that you can get there in the last five years. It'll be too late by then because there'll be too, too much carbon in the atmosphere. And uh, once you get to one and a half degrees, it's very, very difficult to, you know, avoid the overshoot. And then when, once you set yourself on a trajectory of a higher temperature, it's very difficult to get the temperature back down. So you're dealing with some really dangerous scientific principles. And we're already seeing tipping points, as Johan Rockstrom would say, in, in the Arctic, the Antarctic and the coral reefs. You know, not three of the 12 uh, global climate tipping points we've hit. So we don't want to go much further before we before we start to run the risk of doing some really catastrophic damage if we you know, turn off the Gulf Stream and the way in which it works, because that could have some uh, terrible implications. So, you know, we have to respect the science, but we also have to acknowledge that even the limits of science, uh, once you get into tipping points and self-reinforcing cycles, uh, don't tell us exactly what the outcomes might be. So why would we take the risk? Well, well you know, that surely is the uh, clarion call for enormous urgency to avoid every possible ton that goes into the atmosphere. So it's clear that there's a lot to be done and that we all have a role to play within that. One of the yeah. things that Nat West is doing is taking an enterprise-wide approach to the decarbonisation pathway. And by that, I mean the, the there's a call to action implicit in some of what you're encouraging your customers to do, your employees to do around their own carbon footprints. You have a carbon footprint tracker, which seems like a great initiative to help people become much more aware mm. of the consequences of their daily actions. How have your employees and your customers responded to that initiative? Mm. Yeah, well, I think at all levels, you know, it, it's been a, it's been a good response. I think, you know, SMEs in particular really want to do something about addressing their emissions in their supply chain. But I think it was 88% of the, the businesses that we asked didn't know where to start. So that's why we're teaming up with Microsoft to give them access to information that's going to enable them to make better decisions around, uh, around that. And similarly for our retail clients who've been working with Kogo, on an app that people can use to measure their footprint and then also to make climate and sustainability smarter uh, decisions. And it's not just about your emissions, but also making sure that you're 
buying products and services from companies that have committed to having a living wage, for example. And then with our own staff, we've given them access to uh, footprinting information and create a little bit of a competition around who's uh, doing what around reducing their footprints, um, which builds a little of a bit of excitement and energy in the in the whole approach to it. And so, you know, understanding where you stand today is a good starting point, uh, and then you can start to figure out what you can do to reduce it. And some of those things are easy, um, and some of them are, are, are much more difficult. But every action that we take. Uh, to uh, reduce our emissions is is a good action that sends an important signal to uh, the suppliers of products and services, and also gives us you know greater knowledge and understanding of what some of the alternatives might be. I actually wanted to ask you a question related to the younger generation. Something that I have really noticed is there's a kind of there's a sort of perception of anachronistic culture associated with banks. And I think what that does mm-hmm. is disincline people of the younger generation to work in banks in a way that mm-hmm. used to be a very highly regarded career path. And given the power that banks harvest in the economy generally, and certainly in the green transition and some, you know, something that we've just been talking about for the for the past, you know, half an hour or so, I just wondered how we could rebrand that in a way that entices younger people in um, to working in that mm. environment and bringing the younger voice into, into mm. that environment so that there's a kind of joining of forces. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point, Tilly. And I remember having a conversation with somebody from uh, the Mars group and they said they had 200,000 graduate applicants, which I thought was a lot, but they felt that Unilever, because it had a million, was able to get access to a much greater talent pool. And that was one of the drivers that they put in place for increasing their commitment to sustainability. And I think the same is true. I mean, what I'd say about our graduates is uh, they're very, very engaged in this subject. You know, they they're really get excited about the prospects of working on climate change and climate-related activities. Uh, we've got a, a fantastic network, employee-led network called the Sustainable Futures uh, Network. And that's a, a community of over 2,000 uh, NatWest colleagues who are looking to put climate change in the heart of the, what they're doing on their day-to-day jobs and in their lives. And again, they're learning more and they're uh, challenging the rest of the organisation uh, to think about things, whether it's getting us to think about uh, carbon footprints of working from home. So we did some work on that uh, whilst we were all in lockdown uh, so that we could work out what those emissions were and we could offset them to, you know, talking about what we're going to have in the canteen once we all get back to work because uh, they have sort of lower carbon footprints associated with certain uh, foods and, you know, dealing with things like plastic waste and how to reduce that food waste again. It's another massive issue that we can all do uh, something about, and I think um, uh, young people are, are, are getting more and more engaged in, in in these issues. You know, working for a bank like NatWest, I think, gives them a real sense of purpose. Thank you, James. And and on that note, I'd just like to extend a, a very warm thanks for your time today. It's been really fascinating to get your insights and in depth perspectives on not just what NatWest are doing, but the banking community 
uh, more broadly. So we wish you all well for the COP26 sort of year of action. Um, but thank you for your time today. Yeah, well, no, great conversation. Thank you, Josephine, and thank you, Tilly. Really enjoyed being part of it. Thank you very much.